Hi there, and welcome to the Mind Coaching Podcast. My name is Frank Nielsen. I work as a Norwegian mental coach. And in this episode, I talk to Colin O'Brady. He's an American pro endurance athlete, a mountain climber, adventurer, and professional speaker. O'Brady is a two-time world record holder for the Explorers Grand Slam and seven summit speed records. He became the fastest person to compete the Adventures Challenges in 139 days and 131 days, respectively. He's a foreign professional triathlete and represented uh, the United States and the ITU tri- Triathlon World Cup circuit, racing 25 countries in six continents from 2009 to 2015. In 2007, Colin O'Brady, he was uh, nastily burned on uh, 25% of his body. And uh, just uh, 18 months later, he won his uh, triathlon. And uh, I discovered uh, Colin when I was watching his TED talk. And I, he was, it wasn't a truly inspiring TED talk. So if you're listening to this podcast, check out, check out the TED talk. Uh, in this episode, we talk about not being rich, work hard and smart, the power of the mind, silent retreat, never walking again, cats in hospital. 17 Mount Everest, fear of losing a hand, meditation, mindset, and much, much more. I truly enjoyed talking to, uh, to Colin. He was a truly inspiring person, and hearing how he has used his mindset to accomplish what he has accomplished, it was uh, truly inspiring. So uh, thank you for listening, and enjoy this episode. Today I want to welcome Colin or Brady to the show. Welcome, Colin. Thanks for having me. After I saw your uh, TED talk, uh, the name Change Your Mind to Achieve Anything at the TEDx Portland, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, I, and I know that I needed to uh, talk to you because uh, I have this podcast and this podcast is uh, the main theme is the mindset. And when, uh, when I listened to your uh, TEDx uh, speak, uh, I heard that uh, you were in some kind of an accident and uh, your mother helped you change your uh, mindset and uh, you did some amazing things and you're actually a two-time world record holder after that uh, accident is that correct uh, Colin yeah yeah it's been uh, it's been quite a journey from being uh, in a hospital room being told I may never walk again to setting two world records it's uh, yeah it's been an interesting journey to say the least can you tell us about this journey for people that hasn't seen the TED talk um, yeah, so in uh, 2000 and let's see, 2007, 2008, uh, I had just recently graduated from university and uh, before sort of settling into a career, what I thought was going to be in financial industry, I uh, decided to take a surfboard and a backpack and go bum around the world a little bit. I know that's uh, fairly common for Norwegians. I feel like I, I run into a lot of Scandinavians out there on the okay. road. Uh, but uh, not super common for Americans to travel like that um, at that age, like a gap year. But uh, just felt like the right thing for me to do. And amazing, amazing experience to be able to travel around. Didn't have much money or anything like that, but just enough to kind of get by and have some fun. Um, and found myself in rural Thailand about halfway through the trip and uh, ended up getting severely burned in a, a fire. I was uh, being a, a few foolish young kid and. Uh, was jumping a, a flaming jump rope, which was very <laughs> cool. yeah. 
stupid, of course. A uh, fairly common <laughs> activity, though, in Thailand. It's not like something I came up with myself. Lots of people were doing it, and uh, I just kind of got the, the bad end of the deal. The rope wrapped around my legs, let me on fire all the way to my neck, um, and had to jump in the ocean to extinguish the flames, which ultimately saved my life, but uh, wasn't before. About 25% of my body was severely burned, mostly my legs and feet. So... Yeah, it was uh, a scary time, and I, you know, I was in rural Thailand, so not the best uh, medical facilities. I was sort of <laughs> driven down a dirt path, uh, uh, and I'm on a moped, and put in a, a nursing station where they, I had to undergo eight surgeries there because I was too unstable for me them to move me. And there was a, a cat running around my bed in the ICU, and it's just a pretty horrific uh, set of circumstances. And the worst thing um, for sure was that the doctors were coming in and telling me like, "Hey, look, like you're so badly burned." Um, it's unlikely you'll ever be able to walk again. Wow. Only, um, you know, sort of get your mind set on being, you know, completely different after this. Cause I had been a pretty active and athletic person. And, and that was really, you know, to be 22 years old, kind of on the edge of adulthood, being told that was uh, a really, really, um, hard emotional time for me. And just to get to some perspective here, uh, Colin, for, for the Norwegian or the others that haven't uh, heard about you before you, uh, graduated, graduated from uh, Yale, correct? That's right. Yeah, and you've also been a uh, football player and a swimmer. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I'd been, uh, as we call soccer, but football player growing up, um, and also a swimmer. And then I swam through university, so I was a nationally ranked swimmer um, all through college. So yeah, I've been a been an avid athlete, definitely. Um, but after college, kind of was thinking, oh well, that's the end of my athletic career, and you know, time to get a a real job behind a desk. Um, and, uh, yeah, so then this, then this all happened and kind of changed the whole trajectory of my life. Yeah. And uh, the reason I wanted this perspective is that uh, you're coming from, what can I say, from pretty good, uh, uh circumstances. Is, uh, is that the right way to say it? Um, uh, in terms of, you know, my background, yeah. my family's background. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Not, not so much. I mean, I grew up pretty poor. Um, okay. so, uh, yeah, I didn't have a lot of resources as a kid, really like pretty like basic life, didn't really travel. Um, I never like traveled internationally or anything like that. As a kid, my, my family didn't have a lot of money. Um, we would just go. But the reason I love the outdoors is where I'm from in Portland, Oregon. It's just a beautiful place. So you can drive like maybe 30 minutes outside of the city in any direction, Portland, and you're either in the mountains or you're near the coast. And so um, that's kind of stuff we did when I was a kid because my family didn't have a lot of money. So they would just like take us go for, you know, hiking and biking and um, camping and that kind of stuff because it's amazing uh, place to, to be from, particularly because all those things are free and very easily accessible. Um, so yeah, that's from my childhood uh, was kind of immersed in that. And as of course, as we'll get to, as I get into this mountaineering world record and things like that, sort of drawing on that passion from a kid in my childhood. But uh, yeah, no, it's a, uh, you'll see there's some comments on my Ted talk that people see that I come, come from a, back, a background with a lot of money, but uh, actually that's not the case at all. I come from no money and to be able to get into Yale university and have the opportunities I have, it's just a product of a lot of hard work throughout my life. Um, definitely none of it's been given to me. That was the reason I wanted to ask this question because I saw all the comments on, uh, on the Ted talk. And, uh, yeah. You know how people like to just make up things. Yeah. And, and that's the reason I, that's the reason I wanted to ask you and, uh, and, uh, that you can explain yourself because, uh, it's an incredible, uh, uh, and entertaining and inspiring conversation or or talk you're having on the TED talk, 
And if you read a lot of the comments, everybody's saying that, oh, it's just coming from money. And they they forget how inspiring it is and how they can use the same techniques in their life. Just just think about the money <laughs> and that you are privileged. Yeah, I think that now that there's enough comments, a lot of people have been uh, saying other things, but mm. saying that, oh, no, he doesn't come from this or, oh, it doesn't matter. But, yeah, it's funny. You know, um, you know I traveled people because I was traveling that time, maybe thought I had money, but that was from – when I was 14 years old, I started a painting company and I started painting houses with my friend. And uh, so I saved up a little bit of money from painting houses every summer for six summers because that was all I wanted to do is travel, um, wow. which is my goal. So that was a product of long time. And when I was traveling around the world, it wasn't uh, it wasn't like glamorous. I would mostly like hitchhiking places because I couldn't afford like transportation. I would either sleeping in like outside sometimes or sleeping in hostels, backpackers. Um, I mostly just ate like, you know, like porridge or peanut butter jelly sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> Cheapest thing I could get. Like it was not like I was like traveling around the world in some five star like place. Um, so yeah, no, it definitely, definitely don't come from very much money, uh, at all. Very humble background. Uh, for me, that's on region. I've heard about Harvard and I heard about, uh, Yale. And for for what I can understand, Yale is one of the best schools in uh, in the U.S. Yes, it's definitely renowned as being one of the top universities in the world for sure. So, how did you start at Yale? Um, yeah, I mean, again, just kind of uh, a product of working really hard as a kid. Just uh, you know, swimming was really important to me in athletics, and so I spent a lot of focus on that. Um, you know ended up you know winning a number of state and regional championships being nationally ranked and swimming all through my childhood um from just basically i swam twice a day every day from being a really young age um and then combine that with the same ethic within my studies so studying and working hard in the classroom and, and all that kind of stuff was sort of a combination of those two things having good grades good test scores and uh in the u.s uh, athletics are also kind of like highly promoted in terms of getting acceptance to university um and so kind of a combination of those three things helped get into the to yale where do you have this work ethic from uh it's a good question you know it's a question that you know is it is that is that an innate trick characteristic or is that uh uh learned you know i think that i've had some great role models in my life um although i you know like i said grew up from pretty humble background uh, my parents are really hardworking people uh entrepreneurs so um at this point in their life they've actually had some success in business that happened you know long after i was grown up and out of the house um but uh you know they were young when they had me my mom was 23 years old when she had me and i have older siblings um so she had kids relatively young um but was always you know working so she you know had a bunch of kids but was also a full-time you know working mother and i think that that you know work ethic to see her able to balance that but still balance that with love and kindness and you know working hard in her career to make something of herself even as a young mother um you know was really you know instrumental in me like learning learning the, the value of a hard work uh, but you, did you see and understand that hard work was uh, important in early age or was it in some way uh, educated or trained from your mother and father's side? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, you know, a product of a lot of things. Like I said, having that, having good coaches. But I also think that, you know, sports, uh, although you don't have to be an athlete to learn this lesson, at least for me, I think that sports is a, was a great teacher in that kind of way. Um, you know, swimming um, is an interesting sport because you're just racing the clock constantly. So even... 
uh, yeah, of course, you're racing the guy in the next lane over from you to try to win a race, but you're also really racing the clock, you know, trying to get your lifetime best swim or anything like that. And so at every age, even when I started swimming, you know, six, seven, eight years old when I was a kid, you know, you'd be trying to go best and maybe I, you know, would win, you know, when I was eight years old, I won my first state championship. Um, wow. But then you ask the question of like, oh, but could I have gone faster? Could I? It's not like you just say, oh, I won. Now it's over. It's like there's always this continual battle against the clock. Um, and a lot of those improvements you can see are a combination. It's really a linear correlation in a lot of ways to training hard and working hard. And then you get faster and stronger, um, particularly as you're growing as a kid and these kind of things. And so I think that actually that was a really great lesson for me to learn of kind of um, reaping what we call reaping what you sow. I don't know if you have that a phrase, yeah. but uh, you know, putting in the hard work um, and seeing what comes from that. So I think that, yeah, there's been been a lot of that. But I, I should also say that, <clears throat> at least for me, um, I feel like I'm coming off in the beginning of this conversation as sounding very severe. Um, but for me, it's also been a lot about having fun and doing what I love. Uh, so it's not like I, I, you know, I'm a big believer that sometimes, uh, I also call this, you know, per, um, pr- they say practice makes perfect, but I believe that perfect practice makes perfect, meaning um, that if you just put hard work into something that you hate or you're not passionate about, or just, you're just working for work's sake, um, you know, sometimes that doesn't pay dividends. Whereas I've tried to do many things in my life that are full of, you know, passion and excitement and things that I love, um, which allow you not only to work hard, but I feel like I'm playing. Like I sometimes say, I feel like I've never worked a day in my life. (laughs) Things that I love all the time. I'm just doing them, um, you know, full, full in. And you're, uh, you're saying something uh, extremely important, I think, uh, Colin, when you say that you're you're training and uh, you're doing it perfect, because when you're doing something perfect, you get better results. And it's a an, uh, professor from Florida, I think. I think he's actually Swedish, and he's now in his 70s, and I think his name is Anderson. And for the last two uh, I think he's 40 or 25 years or something, something in that between. He's uh, been uh, doing some science uh, or some research, excuse me, or some research on uh, the people that are doing um, uh, doing the best in the music, in chess and in performance. And he says that uh, for people to perform their best, they have to be 100% into the practice they are doing. So uh, they can see from the studies that when people do not do 100% in their uh, in their activities, they do not do not get the best results. So it's it's not just about working hard; you have to work smart as well. Exactly. Uh, yeah, 100% agree with that. And I think you know sustainability over time, hmm. like I said, is a function of also doing something that you love. You know, you maybe you're really good at something at a hmm. young age, and so people force you towards that. But if you don't actually have an innate uh, love or passion for that at some point you'll just say even if you're like you said an amazing musician or something like this if you hate doing it you'll be like oh you know i'm burnt out and i don't want to do this every single day you'll be kind of fighting yourself uh, emotionally and so i think finding that alignment with a the things that you're good at that you can work really hard at but also that you love um you know makes for a great combination for success that's an in- that's interesting what you're saying do you remember the, the tennis player uh back in the early 90s uh, late 80s he had uh, oh what's his name again uh, yeah agassi yeah correct and uh have you read this book yes <laughs> he hated tennis <laughs> it was like a prison <laughs> so and his dad forced him to hit balls yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he obviously is good at it, but he is a very, 
seemed from his book, I've read that book as well. It seems like he had a really uh, emotional struggle with that instead of enjoying the process. And, and that must be hard. But uh, the reason I wanted to bring it up is that uh, some people make it make the hard. Uh, some me, some people hate it, like the prison, or they love it, like you're doing. But uh, the reason I wanted to ask you all the questions now, Colin, was to make some perspective for people that uh, haven't heard about you before. But uh, just uh, jump back to the fire and uh, you're really being in hospital with the kittens. Yeah, so I was in, in the hospital room. Like I said, the doctors have been telling me, hey, you may never walk again normally. Um, and, you know, at that point, you know, this is, for me, a huge turning point in my life, which was my mother, you know, showed up uh, in that hospital room. She flew over to Thailand and sat with me in the hospital for, uh, you know, several months uh, while I was recovering. Several months? And, you know, or, or several months yeah. in the hospital in Thailand? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, and she basically, you know, one of the things that I think was really incredible was quite a gift is that I'm sure there's some mothers or uh, fathers out there, parents. I'm not a parent yet, but I will be hopefully at some point in my life. And um, she, you know, I can imagine seeing your kid in that state and she just wanted to cry. She just wanted to break down with me. She was just as scared as I was. Obviously, we're in this you know foreign country where people don't really speak the language. And, you know, instead of coming into my hospital room every day crying and kind of going down the, you know, negative rabbit hole with me, she decided to come in, you know, every day with a smile on her face. Um, and she admits now that in the hallways of the hospital where I wasn't, she was pleading with the doctors. She was crying. She was so upset. Um, but she chose to really not show me that fear for herself. Instead, she came in every single day and was like, okay, how you doing today, Colin? She'd have a smile on her face. She'd be like, you know, we're going to get through this. This is really bad now, but, you know, let's look towards the future. Let's start dreaming about the future. What do you want to do when you get out of here? Let's set a goal. Um, and, you know, it's incredible for me now to realize the strength that that must have taken for her to, you know, sort of give that. But in the end, that was one of the biggest gifts that anyone has ever given me in my life. Um, you know, initially I was kind of like, you're, you're crazy, mom. Like, look at my body. Like, I'm not going to walk again. Um, but at some point, her positivity rubbed off on me. And so I kind of, you know, as my TED Talk says, it sort of changed your mindset. This is a moment where I was sort of forced to change my own mindset um, and start to think about the future. So she was like, great. Well, what do you want to do when you get out of here? And, and I, you know, in my mind, for whatever reason, probably because I've been an athlete, I said to myself, well, if I was to fully recover from this, I would like to one day complete a triathlon. Um, and I had never, uh, done triathlon before. Obviously I, like I said, I've been a swimmer, but I never biked or run competitively or anything like that. But I just, in my mind, um, I know triathlon is pretty big in Norway actually. Um, yeah. and I, and in my mind, uh, you know, being able to complete a triathlon was kind of like, uh, that would be a healthy fit person could be able to do that. And so that became my goal from, from that day on forwards. Um, and similar to how I said I dove into a lot of things in my life kind of full steam ahead, I was just like, that's it. Like, this is my goal. I'm somehow going to figure out how to get out of this hospital room, learn how to walk again and do this. So much so that I actually – I have this funny picture of this. I invite – I told the Thai doctor of my goal, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of here and race a triathlon. He's like, uh, yeah. Like, yeah. Start training right now. And he was like, well, you haven't walked in two months and you're not, not going to walk anytime soon, if ever. And I said, bring me in some weights. And so I have this photo of me actually lifting like 10 pound weights wow. uh, on my arm. So just like a way to like, just, I don't know, my mind, I was like, yeah, that's going to make me strong. <laughs> Pretty funny. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I was released from the Thai hospital eventually, and I flew back to the United States. Uh, when I was released from the hospital, I was um, carried on and off the plane and placed in a wheelchair uh, when I got home. 
and, uh, you know, so still hadn't taken a single step. And then, you know, I, I talk about this in my TED talk, uh, but it uh, was a pretty important moment for me, which was my mom kind of said to me, all right, great. Now you've got this big triathlon goal out there. Now you need to figure out how to take one single step. So it was kind of, she was acknowledging the big long-term goal that I had, but also sometimes I believe with long-term goals, they just seem so far off and so distant. There's not like a tangible uh, pathway to there. And so she kind of taught me another great lesson, which was taking that back down to the sort of the smaller, um, you know, initial sort of one day in front of you goal. And she grabbed a chair from our kitchen table and placed it one step in front of my wheelchair. And she said, all right, your big goal for today is to figure out how to get out of that wheelchair and take one single step. Um, and so it took me, you know, three or four hours that day to kind of work up the courage and strength to try to like get on my feet. I was in so much pain still. Um, but I did it. I actually got out of my wheelchair and got, took one step and sat down in the next chair beside me. Um, and then it went on and on like that for several days. The next day she moved the chair, you know, two or three or four steps away, five steps away. Um, and each day I could get a little bit stronger, which again, was just this great lesson in, yeah, I, you know, I was still in my mind thinking about racing this triathlon, but figuring out how to have those tangible things right in front of me was, was huge to the eventual recovery. You said that uh, your mother was an uh, entrepreneur. Uh, do you think uh, she has used the same mindset herself? To achieve her own goals yeah absolutely you know i think that there's um you know my mother obviously i have so many amazing things to say about her and her influence on my life uh at this point and i threw up many points in my life i think that um i found some interesting you know as i've been out in the world and you know now i do you know quite a bit of you know corporate public speaking or you know talking to different business folks or entrepreneurs there's something about entrepreneurship that uh you know i can correlate in a lot of ways um you know i i think of myself as an entrepreneur now as well but um you know there as an entrepreneur you, you're apt to fail like you're destined to fail at, at times right like there's very few people that's <laughs> like i started my first business and i got everything perfectly right <laughs> they're lying like, no yeah. <laughs> The, the road the road is is full of ups and downs and i think it takes a really certain type of people uh, people that are successful in entrepreneurship of course you need to have a good idea you need to have a sound business model but i think even more importantly than any of those things is having you know that grit and that perseverance to pivot to change adapt to learn from mistakes and learn from failures um you know when i you know i, I look forward and realize now that i've set you know two world records in mountaineering and we'll talk more about triathlon and those types of things um, you know, I could have taken this burn accident and have been the worst thing in my life. And it would have been a, the beginning of a chain of events of huge negativity in my life, um, which it kind of seemed like it was headed down that pathway when the doctors were telling me you never walk again. And when in fact, now I look back with 10 years perspective and realize that it was the catalyst for some of the greatest learning and change, um, ever in my life. Again, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, uh, the pain and trauma of that, but at the same time, you know, being able to take the lessons from not only the successes, but also the failures in life, I think is huge. And I think the sort of entrepreneurial spirit, at least successful entrepreneurs will tell you the same thing, which is that they learned a ton from their mistakes and making those mistakes were super important to their eventual, um, you know, success. So yeah, having, having that and being around my mother and stepfather who were entrepreneurs, you know, and in the house when I was a kid, um, definitely taught me a lot about that for sure. Um, but yeah, so then, you know, just, just to kind of finish the, the recovery story a little bit would be that I, um, you know, kind of kept training, like I said, one step at a time. Um, and fast forward, 
about 18 months, I had moved to Chicago uh, to take a job in finance. I had, at that point, kind of regained my ability to walk somewhat. I was still uh, pretty injured, but I could move around on my own a bit more. Um, and then I honored that goal of, of signing up for the Chicago triathlon. And I spent uh, spent the summer training for it as hard as I could. I could finally run again and get on my bike and move my body. Um, and it was 18 months after my accident, I signed up to compete in the Chicago triathlon, which at the time, I'm not sure if it still is, but was the largest triathlon participation-wise in the country. There were uh, over 4,000 participants uh, on the day. And I you know, signed up for the race and uh raced the race you know swam and biked and run and just put my whole heart and soul into it as, as as best as i could and it was a complete surprise to me but when i finished the race uh just finishing had been my goal so i was really proud to cross the finish line but i had not only finished the race but i actually won what? the entire on beating you know beating all of the other people wow on high five <laughs> <laughs> wow uh, and so, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Sort of my first triathlon ever to come out and, and win a 4,000-person race um, after having been so badly injured um, was, like I said, a, a pretty pretty crazy and shocking moment for me. It was certainly a big surprise, and it, uh, without a doubt, you know, kind of changed the entire trajectory of my life. I, um, you know, someone, uh, a guy by the name of Brian Gelber, uh, who I knew at the time, uh, came on board to be my first sponsor, and uh, I, I quit my job and turned professional in triathlon and ended up taking the next six years, seven years, uh, racing triathlon professionally all over the world, 25 countries, six continents. Um, so like I said, I thought I was going to be working in finance, but this opportunity <laughs> you know, changed that for me. I had, as a kid, I'd always dreamed of being a professional athlete, and it's not like professional triathlon is a career where you make a lot of money, um, but it allowed me the opportunity to travel and follow my passion, and it was really just grounded in the same principle of, wow, like it's amazing what we can accomplish when we set our minds to something. Uh, you know, 18 months ago, people were telling me I would never walk again. And not only am I, was I now walking, but I was running and I was, you know, competing as one of the you know best triathletes in the world in international competition. So it was, it was a, a great learning for me. Uh, great learning. I, I think you're a little bit, uh, what's the, what's the right word for it? Uh, Yeah, can't find a word. <laughs> Sorry, my Norwegian. <laughs> But I, I didn't know that uh, that you was this great in the triathlons before you started uh, the mountain uh, expeditions. But I just have to ask you about uh, you. St you uh, you start as a commodity trader. Yes. Right. What's the? I know you didn't work as a commodity trader for that long, but what's the ab abilities and common traits for a commodity trader and an adventure sports athlete like you're you're now? Yeah, I think that there's um, I think that there's definitely uh, some correlation for sure. You know, one is in the business world, and definitely in the financial industry, you're definitely going to find a lot of highly driven, highly competitive um, people. Um, and so, I think that you can you know relate that. You do find a lot of former athletes and things for people like that working in that industry. Um, and the other thing I think that's probably the biggest you know correlation is understanding risk. Um, so obviously when I'm, you know, when I was climbing Mount Everest or some of the biggest mountains that I was climbing on this world record project, you know, you're balancing a lot of risk. You're literally playing, you know, with your life in some capacity, making decisions that, um, can, you know, potentially have life or death, uh, implications to them. And, you know, 
commodities trading or, you know, like I said, different roles in the financial industry, um, certainly that's a, a huge thing. You know, there's huge, you know, de- you know, big parts of banks and trading firms and hedge funds that are all dedicated to managing risk and understanding risk. Um, so that's understanding the upside, the risk and reward equation of making bets on things that could have the payoff well for you, but also not taking too much risk to, you know, catastrophically, you know, cripple the firm or entity who you're trading for. So those, those two things I think are, are really interrelated, uh, in terms of understanding that. And it's, it's a powerful thing to understand, not only certainly in the mountains, it's the difference between success and failure, life and death. And, you know, in, uh, you know, commodities trading or financial industry, it's certainly the difference between between you know having a financially successful outcome uh, or not, so really understanding the interplay between those two things because you have to take some risks. You know, like if this is not about um, being risk averse. This is about knowing when to take the appropriate risks. I would say uh, it sounds very familiar because I had an investment banker that I followed uh, up Mount Everest without oxygen. His name is uh, James Bruman. And uh, I talked to him at base camp, and when when, he's, uh, when he came back from uh, Everest again, and uh, he's saying uh, he's saying the same as as you just said that uh, this, uh, the common traits from uh, bankers or whatever it is traders is that uh, they understand risk. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so he's saying the same same as you. But uh, back to your story again. Uh, you just went off <laughs> back to your yeah, story. so you know after racing triathlon uh, professionally for about six or seven years uh things are going really well for me racing wise you know i had just recently won a big half ironman race and uh you know had you know pretty pretty solid sponsorship in place um again not nowhere near as lucrative as the financial career that i thought i was in but for me like i mentioned earlier uh it's all about just doing things that i love and i was loving competing and being able to travel the world you know more and experience life in that way was really unique for me so it wasn't so much about the money um but you know i got to a point it was interesting where i decided you know I wonder if there's something that I can do bigger, something that has a larger purpose than myself. At, at that point, triathlon started to become feeling, I don't know, somewhat self-serving, just in that I was I was racing and competing, and it was for myself, and I kind of felt like I'd proved a lot of things to myself on in that in that way. Uh, certainly, loving to push my body and compete, I still wanted to to do that, but I was wondering if I could do that in a way that had sort of a larger arc to it, and so. Uh, my hope was to be able to give back to the community uh, in some meaningful way by still combining my passion for pushing my body um, to the next level. And for me, like I said, I grew up in a place that's very outdoorsy place near lots of mountains and things like that. So my whole life, I've had a passion for the the outdoors and mountains uh, specifically. And so I, I with my fiance Jenna, um, sort of set this goal, which was to see if I could set the world record for something called the Explorer's Grand Slam. Um, so the Explorer's Grand Slam is uh, the seventh summit. So that's climbing the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents, as well as completing expeditions to both the North Pole and South Pole. Um, so, of course, in there, you've got tallest mountain in Asia is Everest, of course, you know, Denali in, in North America, Elbrus in Europe, which is in Russia, uh, Kilimanjaro in Africa and so on. Um, so basically a fewer than 50 people at the time had ever completed the Explorers Grand Slam. Most of those people have done so, you know, in the course of five years or 10 years, you know, climbing one mountain, coming back, resting, training for another expedition the following year. Um, and even then it's a very challenging thing to complete. 
And I was hoping to do it just consecutive. So I would climb one mountain, fly to the next mountain, climb the next one without stopping. Uh, my goal was to see how fast that I could do it. The previous record had been uh, 197 days, so just about six months. Um, and uh, ultimately, after a year and a half of planning and uh, figuring everything out, I uh, successfully completed it in 139 days, uh, completing not just the world record for the Explorers Grand Slam, but also for the Seven Summits uh, world record uh, as well. And we can get sort of into some more of those details, but I just want to back up a second. And this funny, again, was we were talking about just sort of resources and things like that. Uh, again, in my TED Talk, there was a a few comments, like again, not the, the small amount of them, but a few people saying, "Oh, it must be nice to just be able to just do all these expeditions, traveling all over the world." <laughs> and, um, and that was far from the case. When I chose to to leave triathlon, um, uh, most of my sponsors in that space decided, you know, that they were, you know, not supporting a, a mountaineer, but they were supporting a triathlete. Um, and so I basically had to start completely from scratch again. And uh, to do this project is not insignificant in terms of cost. And so actually I, I had to spend a year and a half at, in, that, in that entrepreneurial spirit, basically building an idea, a concept, um, getting people to support me, finding the right key stakeholders uh, to raise the money uh, to be able to do this project. And so before I even set foot in Antarctica, which was my first expedition, I had spent, Jenna and I had spent a year and a half building the business around this. And when I say business, it's not a for-profit business. It's a, um, you know, just basically to get the cover, cost covered as well as we started a nonprofit um, which again was sort of my bigger purpose that was all around inspiring kids to get outside, explore, live active and healthy lives. Um, you know, I've been, my, my family has been involved in the natural foods health industry for a long time. And, uh, so having sort of healthy living, the importance of physical activity, I don't know, maybe not as big of a problem in Norway, but in the U S the, you know, childhood obesity rates are skyrocketing and people are very unhealthy, uh, in this country. And so my hope was to use the sort of arc of the, the media story of this world record and, and all that came with that to be able to be active in the community. So we started a nonprofit, uh, raising money to help, uh, you know, basically inspire kids. And that's, that's grown and continues to be the work that we do in the community within schools and things uh around the country and world uh what's what's the what's the difference between uh the the grand slam and seven summits yeah so the seven summits is just the mountains it's the like i said the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents um and then the grand slam takes the seven summits challenge and adds to it the North Pole and South Pole expedition, so covering at least the last degree of latitude to reach both poles. Um, so that, that that combines to make the Grand Slam. So my goal originally had just been to set the world record for the uh, the Grand Slam itself. And as I went through my, because I didn't think I would have a shot for the Seven Summits since I was doing the Seven Summits plus the poles. But when I came off of Mount Everest. And again, I mentioned this a little bit, this moment in my TED talk, because it's a pretty pivotal moment. Um, I come off the summit of Mount Everest and I only have one mountain left to climb, which is Denali. And usually Denali takes about three weeks to climb. And of course, I'm coming off Everest, so I'm exhausted and not only Everest, but I've just been on eight other expeditions. So um, I'm 130 days or 20 some days into all of this, uh, as you can imagine, pretty worn out at this point. And Jenna had been running the logistics back home uh, for the project, and I, I call home to her from the satellite phone up at Camp 4 on Everest, um, coming off the summit. You know, I made it to the summit of Everest. I was so proud. You know, 
you know, getting up to Everest, I had some, some troubles there. I'd been caught out in a storm originally and had to retreat and it just had been a really challenging expedition. What year, what year, what year did you, uh, reach Mount Everest? So this whole project, all of these mountains all happened in 2016. Uh, what yeah, that, was that the year that it was, uh, people dying on Everest was, or does it was, or what does in 2015 well every year people die on Everest yeah but it was an um, avalanche was that uh, in 2015 so maybe 2014 there was 14, the avalanche hmm. closed the, the route 16 Sherpas died and in 2015 there was the earthquake in Nepal that killed climbers on the mountain but devastated about 10,000 people lost their lives in Nepal um, and did, then uh, did you think sorry. about did you think about that when you were uh going up Mount Everest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, three people died on Everest and Lhotse the same day that I was climbing Everest. Uh, so, uh, overall, I think six people died on the season that I was out there and three people died on the same day that I was up there. The conditions on the summit day that I went up, um, were really <clears throat> pretty, pretty intense, you know, bad weather, uh, a lot of cold weather, I should say. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, it's the thing about climbing Everest and that's where kind of we come down to that risk, risk assessment, risk management, like we were talking about before in the business context is, you know, knowing your own body, knowing when to push and knowing when you need to retreat. So the first time I got up to camp four above camp four for the non mountaineers listening, um, is known as the death zone above 26,000 feet. Um, you know, the human body basically can't survive for very long, even when you're using supplementary oxygen, uh, your body is basically, you know, slowly deteriorating at that altitude and getting up that high. Um, the first time I got up there, I got caught out in a huge storm. Um, you know, a huge storm came in and it took me about two hours to set up my tent and get inside and retreat from the storm. And I knew that there was no chance that I was going to be able to go for the summit. And that was my, what I felt like was my one, one chance to get up there. Cause it's very hard to get up that high on the mountain once, let alone multiple times in a single season. Um, but I had no choice but to retreat down, uh, in that circumstance. And so a few days later I was able to kind of summon the energy and courage to get back up into that position. But again, the weather forecast was not great. And, uh, you know, there were some, some phone calls home, uh, trying to assess the weather and also trying to assess the, you know, my risk tolerance of like, should I go up? It seems like there's going to be bad weather tonight, maybe. And I'd seen how bad it could you know, change out there. You know, what, what's going to happen? You know, could I get frostbite? Could I, you know, get injured or even die, um, you know, in this, and a lot of people were going to go for the summit that day. So there was a lot of teams, which can make it even more problematic because there can be sort of some traffic on the ropes. And so it was a, you know, a scary moment for me. Ultimately, of course, I, I decided to go for the summit and I, and I did make it, make it to the summit successfully. But like I said before, a couple of people, not anyone who I knew or knew at the time, but a couple of people ultimately that day did lose their lives. Um, and it just kind of puts into perspective how serious it can be to climb Everest. So. Uh, uh, I'm just to ask a question. Uh, when I talked to James Bruman, that, uh, that, um, What's the name? When you're getting on top of Everest, you're, uh, uh, he summited Everest this year uh, without uh, oxygen uh, or extra uh-huh. oxygen. Uh, and he yeah. said that uh, he, after uh, he uh, passed the death zone, uh, he started to get these uh, visual, uh, visualizations for himself. You can see uh, Randolph uh, from uh, Gandalf from uh, Lord of the Rings, and you can see, uh, see <laughs> that an, a German investment banker. So we had these people talking to him uh, when he passed this uh, this height. Did you experience anything like this when uh, you passed uh, the death zone? 
I didn't have any, you know, hallucinations, um, but uh, certainly, you know, your mind is playing tricks on you for sure up there. Uh, one of the the kind of funny, scary at the time, but funny things ultimately that happened to me was uh, as I was halfway up uh, about uh, twenty about the balcony, which is twenty seven thousand five hundred feet. I don't know if that is in meters, but eight thousand six hundred meters or something. Um, uh, you know, pretty near the summit. I. Um, with I was adjusting my jacket and gloves and I was just adjusting taking my gloves off really quickly to adjust a few things down I was still in the middle of the night and I looked down and my right hand was completely black like just black as black can be which is sort of a telltale sign of severe frostbite um and I was really obviously very scared and I was climbing just with myself uh and a sherpa by the name of Pasang Bodhi uh, who was my climbing partner and I, you know, quickly put my gloves back on and kind of decided, well, should I go down? It looks like I'm going to lose my right hand. Um, this is a really bad set of circumstances. But at the same time, again, your mind is not working properly. And so I made this calculation in my mind, which was I was like, well, my family, are they going to still love me? What's Jenna <laughs> think? And I started thinking to myself, well, if I'm going to lose my hand anyways, I should at least get to the summit of it. Um so I continued to climb and then another, you know, hour or two later, the sun had risen and I was getting very near the summit at this point. And th- those, th- those two hours, I was just in this negative spiral in my head. I was like, I can't believe I let this happen. I got up here on Everest. I've heard all the risks and now look at me. I've ruined my hand. It's completely black. Um, and then I had to, again, I had to adjust my glove for something. So I took my glove off and looked down at my hand and I started laughing because Actually, what had happened is I had had um, uh, chemical hand warmers inside of my glove that had broken open and had dyed my hand black from the charcoal and copper from the from the from the hand warmers. And I was celebrating. I was like, "Yes, my hands back! My hands back! This is amazing!" But he, uh, but it, you know, it just goes to show that like. You know, my mind was not right when I saw my hand black, even though it didn't hurt, it wasn't frozen, it worked perfectly well, I immediately thought, oh, wow, I must have lost my hand. You know, because your brain is not like taking in all of the sort of inputs properly. So it took me two hours to figure out. And thank God I didn't turn around due to a broken open hand warmer and above uh, thinking that I had had frostbite. Um, so it's, you know, it's one of those things that I didn't have specific hallucinations, but certainly when you're up that high and I was using supplemental oxygen, uh, on my climb, cause I was trying to climb so quickly, it would have been impossible for me to do it without, although I am very impressed and intrigued by doing that myself, uh, someday, um, like the guy you mentioned, um, who we had on the show, but yeah, it was just, uh, your, your mind is not pr- particularly right up there, which, you know, again, goes into risk assessment because really no one's mind's right up there. No one can carry you down. You're in a situation where you're pretty much, you know, out there on your own. And so even though there's other people around, none of them can really sort of fully help you because they're in the same sort of impaired state as you are. And so it really is a matter of, you know, trusting your own judgment up there, you know, having trained properly before, both physically and mentally, so that when you get up into the circumstances, you can kind of know that you can perform well. How can you train yourself mentally to uh, be mentally prepared to uh, summit Everest? You know, I think that, you know, mental preparation is really, you know, hugely important to, to anything that I do, certainly to take on this huge world record. Yeah, but how? <laughs> 
you know, for me, um, you know, meditation has been a huge part of, of my journey. Um, okay. About six or seven years ago, I was introduced to a meditation practice called Vipassana, where uh, I basically had never meditated a single day in my entire life. And then a friend of mine told me, oh, you should go to this retreat. And what it was is it's 10 days, complete silence and solitude, no reading, no writing, no eye contact, nothing, and just 17 hours a day of meditating, which is not something I literally had ever done before in my life. And so that was uh, an incredible uh, <laughs> challenge, to say the least. Um, but now I, I do that regularly. So about once per year, I try to go back and do that and spend 10 days in complete solitude and silence. Uh, Serious? My thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, I do it every year, um, and uh, yeah. So for me, that's that's uh, that kind of my a, a huge core part of my mental training of being able to sort of sit still and focus and concentrate for that long. Oh no, no, I'm so curious. <laughs> I can't find a verse. So you uh, discovered the silent retreats, and I, and I have heard about the silent retreats, and I always thought about okay, my mind is always racing, and I can sit and meditate for ten minutes. So yeah. sit for days without talking or f- try not to think or be creative. I see it as an as, as a challenge. And in what way did you find more strength at Everest because you've been doing uh, silent meditation, uh, silent so retreats one meditation? Of the, one of the sort of um, mantras or something that you'll learn from a meditation practice certainly something that I've learned from a meditation practice but when I look back I can sort of apply it to many different realms of my life but one of the things is about impermanence um, and so this idea that sort of this too will change and so when you're sitting meditating um, you know one of the basic things you're doing is you're either sort of depending you know, there's many different types of meditation but a lot of them have very similar sort of uh fundamental principles and one of them is just either observing your body or observing your breath just Mm. kind of in a very basic way kind of letting your mind hopefully be blank um and of course everyone's mind races and part of the practice is kind of coming back to observing your body observing your breath and you know one of the things that happens as you sit there during this these 10 day uh meditation retreats is what happens is there's three specific hours in the day that are designated as called sittings of strong determination and so the idea is you sit for an hour long meditation and you know, you sit in whatever posture you want to sit. So you cross legged or kneeling or whatever is comfortable to you. And the idea is once the hour starts that you are not to adjust your posture in any sort of way. So not move your back or your neck or this, that kind of stuff. So no matter what, I don't care who you are, no matter how comfortable you start out sitting, you know, your body is going to start feeling pain. (laughs) Back is going to hurt a little bit. You know, this, you might start sweating or, you know, you might be uncomfortable. Hmm. And so the idea is in those uncomfortable moments to observe it with sort of a a detachment. So not a craving or aversion towards that pain. Um, Not, not assigning sort of negativity, not assigning, Oh God, my back hurts right now. I should really change this. And the idea is when you sit there long enough and just observe the sensation on the body, you can kind of realize you're like, actually, this is just, you know, my body, you know, feeling a certain way right now. But it's not like my back is going to hurt forever endlessly. And the purpose of here is not to injure yourself, obviously, not to like do something that's going to like do damage, but rather to just to observe and go, oh, this too will change. And interestingly enough, as you sit there long enough, maybe five minutes goes by, 10 minutes goes by, 15 minutes goes by, you haven't adjusted your posture. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, my back doesn't hurt anymore. In fact... Now I'm in a meditative state where there's sort of this blissful, um, you know, energy flowing through my body. And again, even as the positive side of that is happening, 
if you want to sign that a positive. The idea is not to crave that, to not be like, oh God, I don't want to go back to where my back hurt and now I'm feeling really good all of a sudden. Uh, again, it's just to observe that objectively. And so as your body sort of ebbs and flows between this sort of what we would normally assign as positive emotions or negative emotions, positive feelings, negative feelings, you just kind of try to sit there um, with an equanimity of your brain and observe that objectively. And so how does that apply to Everest? Well, it's the same type of thing. It's very easy and you know this where I think comes into the mindset whole thing, whether it's Everest or it doesn't have to be Mount Everest, it can be sort of anything you're going through in your own life. Uh, and you know we all have ups and downs. You know we wake up sometimes and we're like frustrated or in a bad mood or something's not going our way. Um, and there's those moments, you know, myself included, where you're just like, oh, I just want to give up. I just want to quit. Um, and so for me, having this meditation practice reminds me that even in these really hard, challenging moments, even when I'm at 28,000 feet on Everest and I'm each step is a huge effort, I remind myself, you know what, like this too will change, you know, keep putting one foot in front of the other, keep moving forwards, um, you know, keep sit sitting in this moment and, and it, it's going to have, you know, the, this, this outcome is not permanent basically. And so that mental side of the training has allowed me to certainly push through a lot of my own perceived limits in my mm -hmm. life. But I apply that not just on mountains or not just in athletic competition, but in, in all aspects of my life as things um, are either going well or, or not going well um, mm -hmm. to remember that, you know, life is, life is ever changing. Except from, uh, from making podcasts and talking to people like yourself, uh, Colin. I work as a mental trainer. So that's the reason I'm making this podcast. So uh, I think it's interesting that uh, that you're using uh, silent meditation to train your mind to use this to use this because when you're training your mind to overcome obstacles that's that's what it is when you're having uh, some back aching or aching everywhere when you're sitting for an hour you're training your mind to overcome the obstacle and uh and you're adapting the same uh the same view on on the obstacle uh, also when you're doing in your um, when you're encountering obstacles in a on everest or in life uh, in general but did you know this before you started meditating that it, it was going to help you train the, your mind this way or Yeah, I mean, originally I, I did, I went to this first meditation retreat uh, because I was hoping that it would, you know, make me race triathlon better. Um, and so, and I, you know, I've been uh, not specifically meditation in this way, but I've been exposed to, um, you know, mental, the mental side of training, you know, throughout my life, you know, in visuals, you know, as a kid, as a swimmer, I used to do a lot of visualization, which I think is really powerful, um, as well as some several other techniques. And so, yeah, I've, you know, I've definitely have always been a strong believer in, you know, the power of our minds. Obviously mm. my Ted talk is named change your mindset <laughs> um, for a reason, uh, because, you know, I think that, yeah, ultimately, even in recovering from my burns, was there a number of things physically that I needed to do um, to get my body strong again, to, you know, do physical therapy, to learn how to walk again, all of those things, those are physical. But really, before the physical uh, inputs happen, it's really a shift in the mind that happens, a belief in self, you know what, hey, I can get through this, or I can do my best from this. Uh, you know, those all are sort of um, emotional volition or mental volition that happens long before physically. And I think that high performance um, you know, you don't find, as we, were, as we were talking about, you don't find many entrepreneurs who haven't failed along the same way. It's the same thing, you know, in high performance, whether that's in sport or business or on the Olympic podium or something like that. 
you, you, you talk to people who have set world records or become champions or become successful business people or really in anything in life that requires high performance, music, art, etc. And you ask somebody, well, did you believe that you were going to win this race or did you believe that you could make you know millions of dollars one day? And I think invariably people will say, yes, like I pictured myself experiencing this mm. moment thousands of times long before I got there. Um, and so, you know, that's, you know, a, con- a confidence in itself. And do you still have doubts? Do doubts creep in? Of course, those people will also tell you <laughs> there was times when I didn't think this was going to happen. Um, but there was something that they believed enough in themselves to keep moving forward. You know, for me with this project, like I said, it wasn't just the 139 days of being able to, you know, climb all these mountains in world record time, you know, for a year and a half, like I said, when I had this idea in my mind and having to get people to try to support me, you know, there was probably a hundred people businesses, companies, you know, people that said, uh, interesting idea, but we don't think this is going to work or why, you know, you're not a professional mountaineer. Certainly. Why, why do you think you could do this? You know, there's every, no matter what you set out to do, there's going to be people around you in general who don't think it's going to happen, who don't think it's going to work. Um, you know, who don't think you're going to be successful. And so being able not only to have the confidence to keep moving forward, but also the confidence to look at people who you might love or respect and say, all right, well, you don't believe in me yet. Um, but of course, when you are successful, people love to say, oh, I knew you could do it. <laughs> you could do it the whole time. <laughs> you know? um, and so that's hard. I mean, that's hard not only to quiet your own voices of doubt, but to quiet other people's voices of doubt and to continue to you know, move forward. Uh, yeah, it takes a lot of mental strength more than anything else. Mental strength more than the physical strength, for sure. How do you do that uh, for yourself? Um, yeah, you know, it's... Uh, You know, I, I do think, I, and I mentioned this before, I think that the, the chair uh, example that I gave is actually a really in, important example of, of the mental side of this, uh, is, is I think it's important to, to have a goal that you do believe in, whatever that goal is, uh, something that you believe in, you know, strongly. You know, I think a good litmus test for goals and passions is actually when you come up against adversity. It's very easy to set a goal and when everything's going right towards that goal, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm going to get there. It's great. Everything's <laughs> great. But a great test is when things start to go wrong. Do you still believe in that goal? Like, are you still passionate about it? Are you still, you know, willing to go through all of the hardship uh, to accomplish that goal? You know, it's all well and good if you're saying, oh, I just want to be a millionaire one day. And if everything's easy to get there, but the second that it's, oh, it's taking a ton of hard work or sacrifice or, you know, you're having to, you know, work crazy hours or be up in the middle of the night or this, like, are you still willing and passionate to do that? And it's no, it's, it's okay if, if your answer is you're not willing to do that because maybe then that's not your right goal. Um, but, you know, I think that it's important to have something that you just are passionate about. So I think that's huge. But again, going back to the chair example, I think it's also about breaking it down. Um, I think having that big, you know, shining light goal out there, um, whether, you know, huge, you know, like I said, a podium or a world record or business success, anything um, out there, but then figuring out like each day, what are the little tiniest little things that you can do each day to get there? Because that grounds it also so much more in reality for people. Um, you know, at the end of my TED talk, you know, I, I, I pull up this rock, which is a rock that I have with me every day that's from the summit of Mount Everest. Um, and that rock, You know, to me, is a reminder, um, which is a tiny little stone, basically, that even Mount Everest, the hugest mountain in the world, can be broken down to its smallest incremental parts, a bunch of small rocks stacked on top of each other. And so for me, that's a metaphor for what I'm trying to explain now, which is, you know, as you set big goals, 
Um, how do you how do you achieve those big goals? For me, it's by breaking it down to the most tiny little granular things. And so you might say, you know, one day, you know, I want to be a doctor. Uh, obviously, the school system is a slightly different in the U.S. than in Norway. Um, but, you know, in the United States, anyways, it requires, you know, first getting a university degree and then getting a medical degree, which takes another four years and then doing a residency, which takes another three years. Um, and there's a bunch of tests and exams and things throughout that, you know, decade long process to get there. And so if you look, oh, wow, well, it's going to take me 10 years to achieve this goal. That seems so hard. That might be so much. But if you say, OK, well, the first thing I need to do is buy this book which allows me to study for this test. And this test gives me the entrance exam. Now, all of a sudden you have a short term goal that is also leading up to this long term thing. And so I think that no matter what your goal is, you can always figure out how to break it down smaller and smaller and smaller. And that becomes these digestible steps. Yeah, And I think uh, discipline also is important. And I think also the, sure. also the habits and the routines is important because I, I believe that a lot of people, they, they fall in love with a vision. I mean, they fall in love with the vision and the main goal. They uh, they having some trouble with uh, the with uh, your stones, <laughs> the little goals to to get to the main goal. That wasn't the right word for it, but uh, I hope you understood what I meant. Is that uh, people often can do the little steps to get to the main goal. So, how did you find uh, the discipline, or uh, and? Uh, or is it in your habits from before or how do you do it uh, do the things you have to do every day to get to the main goal yeah you know discipline is is a hugely important factor in all of this for sure um i think that uh you know for me like i said athletics was how i learned this myself you know you know swimming and, and doing practice every single day you know that was where i learned a lot of that discipline and the, the value of that Um, but I don't think sports is the only way to teach that. That's just been my, my path. Um, but certainly, you know, I think discipline and consistency ultimately, uh, you know, win the day, uh, for sure. I think that, you know, again, people look at people who have been successful and they look at the one big success that they had and they're like, Oh, it all came together for you on that one moment. And, but more often than not, that's a product of, you know, years, if not decades worth of, you know, little, you know, day by day by day increments, you know, mm -hmm. for me, You know, to apply that to my own life, you know, people have said to me, well, you weren't a professional mountaineer and, and you just decided one day you were going to just climb all these mountains and set this world record. Like, how how is that even possible? And I said, well, yes, I have climbed some mountains in my life, but I haven't been a professional mountaineer. But since I was five years old, I have been working on my body physically and my mind. And having the discipline day in and day out to continue to train, to know my limits, to know how to push my body, to know how to, you know, sort of adjust and, and assess risk and all of these things in terms of high performance. And so this success is ultimately a function of decades worth of discipline uh, along that line. And really, you know, I think discipline, I, the other word I use is consistency is important as well. You know, it, you know, sometimes people will have a, a big idea and they'll be really excited about it for a few weeks Hmm. Um, but then it's like, Oh, well, I'm a little less interested in it, in this and now, and it's almost better rather than having that sort of huge singular burst of energy towards something. Although I'm not trying to say you shouldn't have that. It's exciting when you have that passion, but also being able to just wake up day in and day out and do reps. You know, you mentioned Andre Agassi, who's a, a funny <laughs> example who didn't love what he was doing, but certainly what he did 
it was forced on him by his father in this case. And, I, and to me, that's not the, the right path. Um, <laughs> I'm advocating for that. But if you look at how did he become successful, because he was forced to do the same thing repetitively day in and day out. Um, again, it's much better if it's on your own volition and you, you want to do it. Um, but that all boils down to consistency. So by the time he became the world's number one tennis player in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, it was because every single day when he was five years old, six years old, seven years old, you know, was hitting, you know, 2000 tennis balls a day. Now, one of the things that I think that can be discouraging for people when you have these conversations is somebody will be asking who's listening to this podcast, who may be 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old. Well, I didn't do this since I was five years old. So is that, you know, am I screwed? Never and, too late. You know, my, it's never too late. It's just never too late, you know, in my opinion. Um, and so, you know, it might take you a little bit longer to get there. And again, that goal might, you know, be uh, achieved, you know, a little bit later in life, but it doesn't matter. It, it really doesn't matter um, because being along that process and working towards something that you care about, no matter what age you are, to me is, is the most valuable thing in life. You know, you get into that flow state um, of doing something you love and you're passionate about and it's incredible. So it's, it's never too late. I believe that the mental aspect is a muscle, the same way as the physical body is a muscle. It's just about training it. So the reason that I started as a mental trainer is now, I think it's now six years ago, and I work with the professional athletes and leaders. And uh, the reason was that I experienced panic attacks for a long period of time, and I have to have to find out how to start the panic attacks and uh, to find out how to start the panic attacks I have to uh, I, I had to uh, learn how the, how uh, we mentally work and I'm a, I'm not an athlete but I'm an extremely focused person when I'm doing something so for the last six years I've been deep into the um, psychology and the mental aspect and the more I learn about the mental aspect and work with people I see that I talk to people like yourself. Everybody is saying the same thing. The mental thing is like a muscle. And uh, a lot of, uh, especially in the US, I think, I talked to Travis Macy. Have you heard about him before? He's an ultra-endurance runner. Uh, oh, from, cool. uh, and I think he's competed in 130 ultra-endurance races. Wow. Uh, and uh, he has a book called Ultra Mindset. And he's uh, saying the same thing that you were saying. He said that he started uh, training his uh, mind uh, with his father when he was five years old. And it's, it's a lot about the same as you have, you have been doing. It, it looks like. So uh, it looks like in the US, uh, you are more prone to start with um, the mental training early in life. Is that correct or is it just an assumption from my side? Um, you know, I don't know if it's a cultural thing because yeah. I certainly, a lot of people in the U S are not doing that. I think it's becoming more and more prevalent, um, in, you know, sports psychology and you're seeing that sort of trickle down because people are realizing, um, sort of the value uh, of that in the long term for success, not only in sports, but in career and business and those types of things. Um, certainly, uh, in the, even in the last three or four years, you know, meditation has become much more mainstream. Uh, yeah. used to be, of course, this kind of fringe, you know, when you've got apps now like headspace or things like that, which mm. have really taken the essence of that. Um, but brought that into the sort of the lives of people who don't, aren't necessarily, you know, 
you know, feeling like super spiritual or something like that, but realizing like, Hey, look like this 10 minutes a day of basically training your mind can Mm. be incredibly valuable, um, no matter what it is you're doing. And so I do think, and I think it's great to see it. I think that it's great to see that that's becoming more valued by more and more people. Um, as that's tipped more and more into the mainstream, I I equate that, you know, yeah, I said my family's been in health food, you know, industry for a long time. It's like, 20 years ago, organic, healthy, you know, that kind of stuff was like, kind of like, oh, that's these like hippie people. <laughs> now more and more people, I think, are, are understanding the importance of, mm. of healthy eating and that kind of stuff. So it's great to see these things, mental training, health, that kind of stuff, tip more into the mainstream. Uh, what do you said that you're also using some other mental techniques. Uh, what other mental de- techniques do you use, uh, Colin? You know, I mentioned visualization. You know, I think that the visualization, um, you know, it is is hugely uh, important um, for sure um, in in terms of that um, meditation. Um, and then, you know, just just some practices that are what I would say more like in the moment practices. You know, I kind of they're they're these are all interrelated to one another, but I also think that you know, kind of like a, a mantra or things like that can be very strong and powerful for people, sort of in the moment. Hmm. Um, and it doesn't really matter what those words are. You know, for me, I said talk about impermanence. That mantra of sort of this too will change, this too will change is something I can kind of remind myself of. Hmm. It's just a mental. It's a way to kind of just sometimes when you're in the moment with something it's hard to draw on all of your training. Like, Oh, well, let me think about when I was meditating, <laughs> you know, you're exhausted, you're out of breath, you're, you know, whatever it is. So just kind of have those sort of triggers to kind of bring you back. Um, I think are, are important, but I think that a lot of that has to do with more than any of that being able to do that mentally comes with awareness. Uh, so I think self-awareness is a really important key to all of this. Um, because if you're not aware of these sort of changes happening in your body or your, or your mind, then you're not able to draw yourself back in. And so for me, being able to just train myself to have this, uh, I guess I would just call it mental awareness, but of saying like, you know, all of a sudden I'm up on a mountain, the weather's getting bad, I'm getting nervous, I'm getting scared or something like this. I can be like, okay, okay wait a second, like take a deep breath. What's happening here? And I'm aware of the fact that I'm kind of starting to downward spiral in a way and I can sort of use some of these mantras or triggers to kind of bring me back to center. And I would equate that to, you know, meditation practice where ideally you're hoping to clear your mind and sometimes your mind just drifts off and all of a sudden you're like imagining, oh, tomorrow I'm going to be doing this and I have this meeting with this guy and I'm going to be talking on this podcast. And they're like, wait a second. And you kind of pull yourself back in. It's that moment, you know, that's it's not, that's not failing in meditation. Sometimes people get very hard on themselves in meditation and go, Oh, I wasn't meditating good today because I was thinking about a million other things. And it's okay. If you're thinking about a million other things, you know, the practice is just being aware of that being like, Whoa, I'm thinking about a lot of things today. Bring myself back to breath. And maybe only back to your breath for three seconds before your mind drifts off again, but then you bring yourself back. And it's the same thing here. Uh, I think that self-awareness is huge. Um, and can play great roles, not just with high performance, but even, you know, I find that in just my interpersonal relationships, whether that's my fiance, family, whatever, sometimes, you know, you have tensions in any relationships you have, whether that's business, personal or whatnot, and being able to just kind of almost objectively ask yourself, why am I feeling that way right now? Or, or why am I upset about this? Or kind of just having that sort of mental clarity to take before being like, just kind of going with your animal instincts into an argument or a fight or something like that. So I think that the, all of those sort of mental things add up um, to, to being, you know, to, to being helpful. I think it's extremely important to ask, uh, ask yourself questions to, to bring awareness. You need to ask those, ask those questions. Uh, why are, why am I scared at this moment? Or why is this happening? Or why are I'm uh, going for this natural instinct? And, uh, 
to bring awareness to ourselves, I think we need to ask more questions. We are we asking ourselves questions all the day, but uh, we're doing this unconsciously. So I think it's uh, important to ask, a question, ask ourselves questions consciously. But there was one other thing that I'm going to ask you, uh, 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 call it, that uh, just uh, went straight out of the window. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I just I forgot it. Uh, Come back. Uh, yeah, it's coming back. Uh, when you were, yeah, uh, uh, when you were doing this uh, Grand Slam, do you remember one time that you just wanted to give up? You was just, just oh, okay, no, I'm giving up. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a couple of really, you know, hard moments. Um, when I was in Russia, I fell partially into a crevasse on Mount Elbrus. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I was able to get myself out of the crevasse. And the next day, a huge storm was coming in that was going to last a couple of weeks. And so sort of my initial response being very scared in that moment was, I need to, I need to climb down this mountain. I need to regroup. I need to this. But at the same time, if I didn't climb that day, the whole project was probably over because of the timing of the weather was coming in. I was climbing in winter and I needed to get to the next mountain, the North or the next expedition, which was the North pole. And so that was one of those moments where I was kind of sat there on the mountain with my climbing partner at the time and just said to myself, like, can I keep going? Is this safe? Am, am I, am I scared? You know, that kind of, stuff. that, that was, that was a big, and the other one that really stands out certainly was, um, you know, on Everest. Actually, um, I mentioned having to go up twice, being caught up in a storm once re returning and getting back up there again. And, you know, having seen how bad the weather could change, there was that moment standing up there, like, should I do this? Should I take this risk? Is this worth it? Um, and one of the things that, you know, really stood out for me in that moment um, that, that I've, I've returned to was sort of, I think that what I would call sort of the, the collective consciousness or the power uh, of others. Because for me, although I'm very self-disciplined, very self-motivated, um, in that moment, you know, I called home to Jenna and, you know, she kind of gave me the pep talk that I needed to hear, which is, you know, I believe in you and, you know, I know you can do this. Um, but not, you know, in a larger sense than that, one of the things that, you know, she also reminded me of was that my larger purpose for doing this project was around inspiring school kids, um, to, to, to set their own, you know, goals and dreams. You know, we did this whole project, which was called what's your Everest. Um, oh, and so cool. kids would kids from all over the country and world, you know, would send us these video clips. And now I do it in person in schools and I speak to school kids and, you know, they'd say, you know, my Everest is to be the first person in my family to graduate from college or my, you know, my Everest is to be, you know, the next Olympic champion or, or my Everest is to, you know, be an engineer or a doctor, you know, just all these goals and dreams that all these kids are wow. filled with. And it's amazing how kids are able to dream um, big. And, and it was a great reminder that, you know, I was climbing this mountain, not just for myself, but at the time, you know, there was literally thousands and thousands of kids around the country following along via social media, my blog, and we were having this sort of two way interaction with them. Um, you know, ultimately, this project garnered 50 million impressions on social media. Um, I was the first person to Snapchat from the summit of Everest. Wow. Actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, that's a whole other story. But the point being was that it was amazing to feel sort of other people cheering me on. It was, it was ironic how I was hoping to go out in the world and inspire others. But I also in the end was inspired by them because I felt like if I could make it to the top of this mountain, it would be proof 
that you could do amazing things when you switch your mindset. Being told I may never walk again normally and to reach the summit of Mount Everest and to set these world records, I knew that that would allow me to be out in the community and inspire these kids to continue their dreams. So I kind of felt like I was carrying their hopes and dreams with me as well. And when I was afraid and feeling like giving up in this moment, it was a reminder of what my greater purpose for doing this. And that definitely gave me the strength to get to the top. Uh, cool. I've been now talking for uh, talking with you for an, for an hour, uh, Colin. Uh, there is one thing I, I think I haven't, I can grasp it. Uh, what is your largest strength, do you think? Largest strength? Wow, that's a good question. Um, hmm. I think for me, uh, two, twofold. I would say that I'm generally an inter- eternal optimist. Um, so there's a lot of things that have gone wrong for me in my life. Like I said, I didn't, I grew up with a pretty humble background. Wasn't like, didn't, uh, despite the comments on YouTube, <laughs> I was, uh, did not grow up rich. I did not have a ton of opportunities or, you know, money forced on me as a kid or anything like that. Um, I was severely burned in this fire, told I may never walk again. And, you know, even through all my successes on the race course and triathlon, I had numerous setbacks as well as planning for this project, but I have a way um, of despite sort of really bad set of circumstances of all kind of always putting a positive spin on it. Uh, and you know, people, my family, Jenna, whatever, it's kind of sometimes joke around with me about this. They're like, you know, it could be the worst possible thing. But I'm like, yeah, but look, like, you know, <laughs> it might turn out for the best in the end, you know, kind of thing. So I think that having that optimism, um, is, is, a, is a huge strength. Um, but also I would, I would also call that perseverance, um, in a, in a way of, being able to, you know, sort of have, we talked about discipline as well. You know, Jenna sometimes described me as one of the most disciplined people that she knows of just when I, when I fix my mind on something, I'm really all, all in on it. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've tackled some things that aren't, don't have completely linear paths, like even just becoming a professional triathlete or trying to climb these mountains. It's not like there's like a, you know, someone can hand you the roadmap and say, well, here's how you do, you want to set a world record and different continents sort of stuff like that's there's no you could ask a few people who have maybe done some of these mountains for some advice but in the end of the day you're blazing your own trail and when you do things like that i believe that you can accomplish amazing things that's how business you know that's how incredible businesses that change the world have been started that's how incredible concepts science you know groundbreaking you know ideas have been started but you're also you know taking a risk because you're going out there um basically creating something that's never been created before. Um, and so being able to uh, sort of have that self-belief. So I would say uh, I have a way of having optimism, but also a way of just kind of trying to just keep figuring it out. Like I fail all the time. Like I get things wrong all of the time. Like I ask for people to help or support things and people say no to me all of the time. But instead of being super discouraged by that, I'm kind of like, okay, well that didn't work, but can we try it a different way or can we ask it a different way or can we switch that or evolve that? Um, so I think that's that sort of optimism way of always just trying to figure out, you know, the next, the next thing. Uh, how long did you practice the TED talk? Because it was an incredibly good speech. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, I, uh, let's see. So I do, I do, like I said, I do a lot of speaking, um, like keynotes and stuff like that. And it's something that I want to do more and more of because I really enjoy, um, speaking, you know, in different environments, um, business environments and whatnot. Um, but the Ted is a different thing. You know, I've always been a really big fan of Ted talks since I was young. Uh, I think they're just amazing, just sources of inspiration for myself. And so when I was invited to give a Ted talk, 
I didn't, I was very certain. I was like, I want to make this, you know, it's special thing. And also usually when I speak for a keynote, it's like 45 minutes or something like that. Um, and so being able to tell that story in less time, it might sound fun. Almost giving a shorter speech, uh, it's almost more challenging than giving a longer speech, believe it or not. Um, cause you know, each word has to be sort of really, really kind of perfect. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely put some effort into practicing that for, for a couple of months and getting it just right. Um, I'm glad you liked it and I hope that other people out there share it and listen to it as well. But did you get any professional help or did you stand in front of the mirror? What did you, because you had this, um, you, you know, on your points, you always hit the points and it was, it was, it was just like you've done it a thousand times because every point was perfect so so how did you do it <laughs> thank you um you know to be honest uh there there was no specific professional help um but there's two people that were hugely instrumental um one is jenna who i've mentioned many times throughout this because she's not only my fiance and life partner but she's my partner in, in everything that we do from creativity to business um she's just incredibly talented and she's a great you know writer great with words um so she was hugely helpful in this and then the other was uh, my friend but a guy by the name of blake brinker um he's just a, a dear friend of mine um and he has been a patron of ted conferences for many years so he's attended many ted talks and he's also um used to run this huge uh company called creative which was kind of bringing all together a lot of sort of creatives in one one space online and so he's just got a great mind uh for things like this and so really me him and jenna so the three of us kind of spent a bunch of time together over a couple of months of me sort of of course it's my story that i know very well and with their help sort of crafting some of the language and ideas around that and creative so it was really a collaborative process of the three of us and then practicing you know like they, they the two of them of course were there on the day um on the stage and they're very kind and saying that they they loved the way that i delivered it on stage but by the time i got to the stage i had practiced it they had heard the talk many 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 times um beforehand but for me you know to to give you know you know, I think in terms of speaking, it's all about speaking from the heart and speaking authentically. Um, and so although it was very practiced, it also um, has to come from the heart. You have to feel those emotions on the stage. Um, you know, so I didn't use any notes. Uh, there was no notes on the screens or I didn't, wasn't carrying any notes. It was all just in, in my head um, because, you know, even every time that I tell this story, although I've told this story many times, um, I feel the emotion of it, you know, and seeing my mother, she was sitting in the front row uh, of that auditorium when I was giving the talk and she had never heard the, this talk before. Um, you may have noticed at least for a, a little moment, I, I get emotional on the stage and kind of had to collect myself. Um, but I think that that's powerful because being able to tell this story and, you know, give that gratitude to my mother who, you know, obviously had such an impact on my life ultimately, um, you know, in that moment of being burned in that hospital, but to see her sitting there in the front front row listening to me uh was special there was you know three thousand people there attending on the day but it was almost like i was talking just directly uh, to my mother in that moment so it was a special moment for me um and i'm glad that it's been well received online yeah and we felt uh, i think we felt the same feelings at least i did and uh when you uh, you need to collect yourself we we get the yeah. same feeling so i really enjoyed uh, talking to you uh, Colin, you're, you. an, you're an inspiring person. And uh, where is uh, the road going for you uh, in the future, you think? Yeah, what's next? Uh, that's a big question. You know, I um, it's been uh, quite a gift to come back from this uh, world record. Uh, it certainly 
in terms of media and all this kind of stuff grew beyond my wildest dreams. Uh, it's been amazing to be able to share this story as far and wide as possible. And it gives me great joy. Um, you know, I, uh, think of myself as a very humble person. And so to be, to someone like yourself and others to be able to tell me that I'm inspiring is, is just feels very good myself, but it also um, is something that I want to continue to share. And, you know, with my, you know, my TED talk or all the other speaking that I do, um, my goal in sharing my story is not so that people can pat me on the back and say, Oh, great. You're a world record holder. That's so amazing for you. Um, you know, my great joy and what I perceive as success when someone watches my TED talk or, or, or hears me speak otherwise is for people to take that into their own lives because I think that we all have unique and special journeys and we all as humans have this incredible potential that can be unlocked and we all have the keys to unlocking that because it's all within our own minds, I believe. And so, uh, success for me is when people hear this story and come up to me afterwards and tell me about their own life. They say, oh, that's amazing, but your story has inspired me to think about this in my life, or I'm going through this super hard time in my life, and this has inspired me to push through that obstacle, or I had this idea for this business I wanted to start, and I've been nervous to start it, but I've heard the story, and now I believe in myself that I can go out um, and accomplish that. So. Um, what does the future hold for me? Certainly there's a, a piece of what I do that will be to continue to share this story, um, both through public speaking and I'm working on writing a book and things like that. Um, so those are, you know, a huge parts of coming up, but as well as, you know, I'm 32 years old. Um, you know, I haven't li- written the last <laughs> chapter in the my book of my life. <laughs> to continue to accomplish. So, um, you know, my, my work with my nonprofit is still hugely important to me and I'm, I haven't, I, unfortunately I can't announce it quite yet here, but I'm working on some other big projects, um, some athletic feats that I, uh, will want to accomplish as well. So there's going to be some, some big, big projects. So stay tuned. If there's anyone out there want to you know, follow me on social media at Colin O'Brady, um, you know, stay tuned there. Cause I'll be certainly, uh, announcing some other big projects soon that will be, you know, pushing myself to the limits and, um, you know, cause I, I still have tons to learn on my journey. You know, I, I've, I've accomplished some things in my life, uh, at a relatively young age, but, uh, like I said, there's many more, uh, many more things to come and, and that's where I learn and grow. I am sure I'm going to talk to you again, uh, Colin. So, um, uh... Because it's, this was uh, truly inspiring. Uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and uh, inspiring us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Frank. I really appreciate oh, it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye.